it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 18th, 2015. Week from tomorrow, Thanksgiving. Woo! <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. A little bit of downtime. Much needed downtime. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, challenge what people are saying, put their statements or biblical-ish statements back in context in the scriptures to see if it squares with what God's Word says. And what we end up doing is testing what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolates to see if they're actually teaching sound biblical doctrine or if they're twisting God's Word and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to be teaching. That's kind of the general idea. And uh, what we do once a week, we have what we call our light episode. And today, today's episode will be light-ish. <laughs> Let me explain. Friday will truly be a light episode. We will play part two of, uh, of our two-part series that we're uh, playing with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's sermons on the great heresies of uh, the Christian church. And uh, last week, we covered modalism and Gnosticism. And, uh, you know, I forget what we're going to be, what's coming up on Friday. Brain is a little fried, but uh, we will be doing that. And the reason why we're doing a light episode then is really just because of kind of the bottleneck in my schedule. But today we will be doing an email segment first hour. And then when we're finished uh, with that, we will uh, take a break. Actually, we'll, you know, it, it might turn out to be a full hour. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through these. Sometimes. Emails go quickly, sometimes they don't. But when we get through the pile, what we'll do is uh, we will, in the, in the second half of the program, play part two of uh, the Ecclesiastes series that we've begun with Pastor Jeremy Rohde from Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. So that will uh, make up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So uh, make yourself comfortable, and we will go ahead and get to it since we're going to start with email today. Let's do this. That's right. We're going to begin email number one today. Uh, comes from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley himself. Uh, he's a prolific emailer here at Fighting for the Faith. Has been for many years, and um, he has sent me an email regarding the Jim Baker show and Steve Strang. Here's what uh, Pastor Charmley writes. He says, "Listening to your show from October 27th, I noted uh, Jim Baker and Steve Strang talking about the probability of past events." occurring in regards to the probability of two consecutive stock market crashes happening on Elul 29. The problem with this is, of course, that it is a massive abuse of the mathematics of probability. 
hmm, you are supposed to use that to work out the probability of an event occurring, not the probability of an event that has already occurred. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take the obvious example, horse racing. Obvious since probabilities are used to set odds for particular horses winning a race. The odds of, let's say, a fictional horse called Shooting Star winning the Gold Cup at Ascot is 100 to 1. In horse racing terms, that's pretty unlikely. Yet, let's say that Shooting Star wins. Does that mean Shooting Star winning the Gold Cup is significant? Well, William Tapley would say so. But then he's William Tapley. He's a nut. In the same way, a stock market crash happening on a little 29 is merely a coincidence. Since an event has to happen on one day of the year, if it's going to happen at all, the probability of it happening on that day is in fact irrelevant, since it is the same as the probability of it happening on any other day. <clears throat> Great email, Pastor Charmley. Thank you again for your fantastic contributions via email, as well as uh, the sermons that uh, you provide for us here at Fighting for the Faith. Next email comes to us from Jesus in uh, Yuma, Arizona, and he writes, I have a few questions concerning predestination. Do Lutherans have the same view of this doctrine as the Reformed theologians, the Calvinists do? And uh, what is your understanding of Romans 9? And finally, what is your standing in the work of the Spirit regeneration in Old Testament people, for example, Abraham, who was enabled to receive faith? All right, real quick, uh, Jesus, um, if you want to know kind of the, uh, well, how do I put this? If you want to know the actual Lutheran doctrine as it pertains to predestination, um, you can find this in a, uh, in a well, in something called the um, Saxon Visitation Articles. Saxon Visitation Articles, you can find this at bookofconcord.org. And um, the, the Saxon Visitation Articles, uh, they're written kind of uh, tit for tat, if you would, against uh, the, uh, Calvinist uh, particulars, all right? And so when it comes to the Lutheran doctrine of election, there's some very, uh, well, uh, very big differences between what the Lutherans believe regarding predestination and what the Calvinists uh, hold regarding this. And let, let me read to you. For instance, Article one, uh, 1 from the Saxon Visitation Articles says, uh, Christ has died for all people as the Lamb of God, has borne the sins of the whole world. Yeah, so whereas the Calvinist says that Christ died not for all, all, all people, but only the elect. I mean, that, so, yeah, our our doctrine of election basically says, listen, you got to understand this. Number one, Christ has died for everybody. And uh, we would point to many passages in Scripture that bear this out, which the, uh, the Calvinists end up having to, uh, how shall I say this politely, they end up playing semantical word games to make it so that all and every doesn't mean all and every. Um, yeah, it's or whosoever doesn't actually mean that. It's kind of uh, frustrating, if you know what I mean. Um, so uh, art Article 2, God created no one for condemnation, but wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Therefore, he commands all to hear his son in the gospel. By the gospel, he promises the power and the working of the Spirit for conversion and for salvation. Uh, conversely, we reject this idea that God created most people or you know, a group of people for eternal condemnation and is unwilling that they be converted or saved. Um, I'll read Article 4, and you, you, like I said, you can find these at bookofconcord.org. I'll put a link up to it uh, with uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith as far additional resources for follow-up. Um, Article 4 says, All sinners who repent and receive uh, are received into grace 
No one is excluded, even though the sins were a scarlet, for God's mercy is much greater than the sins of all the world, and God has compassion on all of his works. We reject this idea that those who are not elect must be condemned, you know, the reprobate. Uh, they cannot attain salvation, even though they're baptized a thousand times, daily go to the Lord's Supper, and also live as holy and blameless as ever possible. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of have to understand this, is that um, when we talk about election, uh, Lutherans don't talk about election apart from the means of grace. And we believe that because everybody is born dead in trespasses and sins, whether they live in the Old Testament times or the New Testament times, the one who has faith in the Messiah, you know, Old Testament saints looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, Old Testament, uh, New Testament saints looking backwards uh, to what the Messiah has accomplished in our history, that everybody who's regenerated, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And as far as Romans 9 is concerned, we would not say that as a primary passage as it relates to our doctrine of election. You know, and I would again point you to the Saxon Visitation articles to kind of work that out. Next email comes from Vicar Aaron Spratt in Hubbard, Iowa. He says, Pastor Rosebro, could you address the title article called Walking, uh, the, F- Walking the Walk in Faith, pages 11 and 13 from the most recent edition of the Concordia Seminaries magazine? Yeah, I've seen that article. Most troubling is this line. <clears throat> Prayer walking is letting God bring his request to me, not me bringing requests to God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he asks, is this a biblical interpretation of prayer? Answer, um, uh, Aaron, no, not at all. I mean, where in Scripture does it tell us to prayer walk and that when we're prayer walking, God will uh, bring his request to us? I mean, this is just nonsense. And, he, and then he asks, is this what Mark Batterson practiced around D.C.? The answer is absolutely that is what Mark Batterson uh, practiced. And does this fall into mystical practices? The, y- yes, it does. Also, the article highlights uh, more churches reach more people, new churches reach new people, different churches reach different people. What is the underlying meaning of this phrase? I think that's their attempt to um, kind of twist that biblical text that talks about uh, where Paul says, I'm all things to all people, so that by all means some might be saved. I would uh, point you to uh, Todd Wilkins' article in the uh, most recent Issues Etc. journal where he addresses that and uh, and then also, uh, you know, um, I you know I also did an interview with the Todd Wilkin back in May on labyrinth walking and, and contemplative prayer and mysticism and stuff like that, which apparently the St. Louis Seminary <clears throat> has recently endorsed. And I'll put a link up to that with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. All right, uh, Brant from Madison, Wisconsin, writes. He says, "Hi, Pastor Roseboro. Regarding Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. You say that when people interpret this passage to a broader audience than its original audience, it's taken out of context, like reading someone else's mail. Is this not the same hermeneutic that modern liberals use to discount Paul's epistles regarding women's ordination, homosexuality, etc.? I'm not a member of the first century church in Rome or named Timothy or Titus, so how do these apply to me but other letters do not? Uh, P.S. I agree with you, just playing devil's advocate because I'd like to hear your response. Uh, Brant, a great question. Um, it's really a matter of context and genre, at least at, at initially. And uh, what I would do is I would point you to, um, hold on a second, let me pull this up in my Bible, uh, Genesis 15. Genesis 15 to kind of get an example, if you would, of uh, what it is that we're talking about here. 
And hold on a second here. I need to uh, switch to an English translation. My apologies. My apologies. I was doing some work in the Hebrew earlier. Okay. All right. Genesis 15.1. So let me give you an example. Uh, Genesis 15.1 through 6 reads, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward, your very... Uh, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, Abra and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here's the idea, is that here we have God directly revealing to Abram that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand of the, as the stars of heaven, Right. Um, if I were to the, I can't, see if I um, then had a couple that uh, attended our church up in uh, Minnesota, up at Kongsvinger, and uh, they were having fertility issues, I couldn't take them to this text and say, look, God says here that your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in heaven. And the reason why is quite simple, because that was a specific promise to a specific person at a specific time, although it's recorded in Scripture, it is not a text that couples struggling with infertility can go to and claim their miracle and claim, well, God has promised me that um, <laughs> that uh, that uh, my descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in heaven. You, you just can't do that. Same with Jeremiah 29, 11, by the way. And here's the idea, is that the people who are twisting Jeremiah 29, 11, and turning it into a general promise are misusing the text because it's not giving a general promise of our receiving from God prosperity and health. That's how they're reinterpreting it, okay? Instead, this is not some general promise for our receiving of prosperity and health. This is a specific promise to God, and the context dictates that very clearly. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will uh, fulfill to you my promise and bring back, bring you back to this place. So notice uh, Jeremiah 29.10 makes it clear that you know God's speaking to the, the exiles of Babylon, giving them a promise uh, that he's going to return them to Israel. Back, they will, after 70 years in exile, they will be permitted by God to return back to their homeland. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The one, so it, you can't understand verse 11 apart from verse 10. And verse 10 makes it clear that this is a specific promise, not a general promise to everybody. Does that make sense? So the idea here is, is that the context is going to set this up. Now, when we get into the epistles, the epistles are giving Catholic doctrine. This is apostolic Catholic doctrine. And the doctrine is th that we as Christians receive from the apostles is, is universally understood to, you know, to apply to every church in all times. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the idea here is, is that there's a Catholicity to the doctrine that is revealed in the epistles 
And, um, and so, yeah, yeah, that's the reason why. And so what's revealed doctrinally in the epistles is not for a specific person. That's not their doctrine. And then we got to go hunt and find our own. That's Catholic apostolic doctrine, Catholic small C meaning universal. So I hope that answers your questions. Okay, uh, next email. This one comes from Paul, and Paul, unfortunately, did not tell us where he's from. And uh, as per our policy here at Fighting for the Faith, if you send me an email and you don't let me know where you're from, yeah, I, I uh, make something up. And, uh, in fact, I actually have a website that I go to. It's a random city generator. And so uh, Paul is uh, from Dhaka, Bangla- Bangladesh. Dhaka- Paul from uh, Dhaka, Bangladesh writes, he says, Thank you for your show. In a recent program, you talked about how the gospel is for Christians, too. Do you know of any other stuff on this? I'd like to study it further, as it's foreign to me being evangelical. Thank you for your work. All right. Uh, Paul, let me let me say this. Um, let, I, I know that uh, Christians need to hear the gospel and that Christians should be hearing the gospel as well, you know, rather than just unbelievers hearing it, is because Scripture does this. Let, let me give you an example. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 writes to the Christians in Rome, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. He is eager to preach the gospel to Christians. And he says, why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And when you read the epistles, the epistles are chock full of the gospel being proclaimed and preached to none other than Christians. And see, you know, when you pay attention to that, you'll realize, whoa, yeah, it's right there in Scripture, which I think is the reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verse 2, to the church at Corinth, I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Catch that. I wanted to know nothing among you to the Christians there in the church in Corinth except for Christ and him crucified. So the idea here is is that, yes, we Christians need to hear the gospel too. And there's some good resources out there. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, the... um, the lecture by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt entitled uh, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. We'll put a link up to that with this episode of Fighting for the Faith. And then I would also recommend the work of uh, the website uh, Christ Hold Fast, you know, another place where, you know, they just go overboard in preaching the gospel to Christians. It's an important thing, but, you know, it, it has its genesis really for real in the epistles. The epistles are written to Christians, and yet to, to just to do a study. Read Romans, read Ephesians, read Colossians, read Philippians, read these epistles, and then note how much the gospel is proclaimed to you as a Christian. And you'll get the idea. There there must be a reason why we Christians need to hear the gospel and why Paul was eager to preach the gospel to Christians, because we as Christians need to hear it. And here's the idea, is that daily you sin much and you need to hear that Christ has bled and died for you. And so Christian pastors, following the example of the apostles, preach for faith in Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And that is the wellspring then from which our good works flow. So uh, over and again in evangelicalism, 
you know, the gospel is in the rear view mirror. It's a rear view mirror, uh, gospel. Uh, by the way, another book, um, you know, that's uh, worth looking at is, uh, the book by Michael Horton, Christless Christianity, well worth a read. But, uh, but, uh, in evangelicalism, it's rear view mirror, Christi- it's rear view mirror gospel, Jesus and him crucified. It's in the rear view. Mirror. That's the thing that got you into the fun park of works. And, you know, you'll never hear, hear the gospel again. That is a supreme error. And uh, we know this because the epistles, the apostles constantly preach the gospel to Christians. All right. John from Issaquah, Washington writes, he says, I'm a former Mars Hill Church youth pastor. Glad to be out. I've been listening to you on an average of about three hours a day for the last four months. <laughs> Do you have a... I, <laughs> yeah, I listen to myself. Uh, record, you know, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> I, I'm I, my apologies. Anyway, he says he says I'm in sales, so I drive a lot. I'm well on my way to becoming Lutheran because of you, and 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 that's great news, by the way. He says I need your help. Your exposition of the Old Testament is amazing, and uh, they they do not sound anything like I you know like I used to read or listen to. You have given me eyes to point out errors in so many preachers and teachers. I'm reading a commentary on Jeremiah this morning. It is by some reform guy, and I'm realizing he's saying some of the things that are just plain wrong. Could you please recommend some good commentaries for the Old Testament? Any of your favorites will do. Um, I, w- I would take any New Testament recommendations as well. Okay, here's kind of the idea is that, um, uh, you know, I use uh, for the New Testament, I like Lenski's commentaries. They're fantastic. Um, I also, Paul Kretzmann's uh, popular commentary is just a great place to start off with. And uh, Paul Kretzmann's commentary is available for free on the internet, uh, kretzmannproject.org. As far as how I learned Christology and uh, typology, um, I started to figure that out because of the way the apostles uh, read the Old Testament. And then in my reading of the church fathers, I began, that kind of crack open and uh, help, you know, I can see then how the church fathers use typology in their reading of uh, the Old Testament. But let me give you some uh, some uh, books that I think might help you on this. Uh, the first is the, uh, the the Great Works of God, Volumes 1 through 4 by Valerius Herberger. Yeah, I know, it's an f- amazing name. <laughs> but yeah, The Great Works of God, volume uh, Volumes 1 through 4 by Valerius Herberger. Fantastic um, sermons that kind of you know, also show this uh, typology. Another one, by the way, um, uh, John, if you have uh, Logos, if you have the Logos software, look for this as uh, as a personal book because somebody put this together and you can make it a personal book in your uh, Logos software. The name of it is Christology of the Old Testament by Ernst Wilhelm Hengstenberger. Hengstenberg, sorry, Hengstenberg. Wilms, Ernst Wilhelm Hengstenberg, in the name of the book again, uh, Christology of the Old Testament. It's multiple volumes, but uh, there's somebody had put it together, Word documents that you can make into a personal book in uh, the Logos software, well worth the download. And I mean, oh, this fantastic read. Um, as uh, Another good uh, resource is the Ancient Christian Commentary Series. Um, again, fantastic because... Um, as you're working through a biblical text, they give you some of the kind of high water marks in the uh, writings of the church fathers and how they understood a text. Another great place to kind of begin to unpack the typology. But if you really want uh, a primer on this, then I cannot, I cannot more highly recommend 
that you visit uh, the website for Repristination Press. And there's three books you're going to need to get, and I apologize they're not cheap. Uh, the the first is are the Postilla by uh, Johann Gerhard. Get volumes one and two, and what those are are kind of like model sermons for the church year. And read those sermons because uh, Johann Gerhard does an amazing job of of connecting the Old Testament with the uh, the gospel readings uh, throughout the church year, and again gives you more of the framework for understanding sound typology. But another uh, book by uh, Johann Gerhardt, which is like literally becoming my all-time favorite, is entitled An Explanation of the History of the Suffering and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's quite a title, um, but again, it's it, 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 the title is An Explanation of the History of the Suffering and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by Johann Gerhardt, and that's available at Repristination Press. And that would be, you know, if you really want to start to, you know, break into understanding biblical typology and how the good theologians of the time of the Reformation were seeing this, well, then there really isn't a better book than that book. I I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. All right, last email comes from Michael from Shah Alam, Malaysia. And no, that's really where he's from. I did not make that up. Uh, he writes, he says, uh, Pastor Chris, is if there are no more prophets after Jesus, Hebrews 1, how do you explain the prophet Agabus in Acts 21? Actually, quite simply, uh, Michael, it's uh, it has to do with the fact that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, the way you receive the gift of prophecy was by the laying on of hands of an apostle. And so the idea here is, is that the gift of prophecy ultimately dies out as the people who received the gift of prophecy from the apostles, they die out after the apostles are all gone. And what I would recommend that you do is uh, contact a bookstore in the United States of America. The name of it is the Concordia Theological Seminary Bookstore, and they're in Fort Wayne, Indiana. In the United States, you can reach them at 260-452-2160, and uh, get a book from them. It's only like $5 uh, in the United States, plus shipping and handling. I don't know what the shipping and handling would be there to where you are, but the name of the book is An Evaluation of the Claims to the Charismatic Gifts by Douglas Judish, and uh, he really lays out, lays this all out uh, in this book as to you know, how, you know, how the gift of prophecy was received in the time of the New Testament. Agabus, he received the gift of prophecy by the laying on of hands of one of the apostles, and that's how he had it. Um, you can also point to one of the church fathers. It was Polycarp, uh, who uh, on his, you know, before he died, he you know, had a prophetic revelation of how that was going to go down. And um, he, he was one of these guys who you know, received that gift, the ability to do that, from the apostle John in Ephesus. So, um, but this is the reason why you see um, with the finishing of the canon, with the finishing of the New Testament and the death of the apostles, you see a, a ceasing of particular gifts of the Holy Spirit. Not that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, have stopped, you know, for instance, like the gift of teaching or the gift of discernment, things like that. Those continue to this day. But the revelatory gifts, um, those were kind of unique in, uh, in the way they were uh, practiced in the time of the uh, of the New Testament church. And um, those specific revelatory gifts of tongues and prophecy, 
those all you know died out uh, with the uh, with the apostles. So I think you get the idea there. But again, contact the Concordia Theological Seminary uh, bookstore at in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The number is two six zero four five two two one six zero. Have them send you the book, an evaluation of the claims to the charismatic gifts by Douglas Judish, and that should answer that question. And believe it or not, we are through our emails, which means that we are up on our first break. And uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to part two of uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde's lecture series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve 
packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, Thief. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered uh, gospel Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Every summer for the past 15 years, youth have been immersed in the waters of their baptism at Higher Things Conferences. On January 2nd, we invite college students and young adults to the campus of Concordia University, Chicago for an evening spent drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. This unique Higher Things Lutheran Unconference will begin with a service of vespers and end with evening prayer. In between, seven incredible Lutheran pastors will take the stage for just 20 minutes each. A sit-down dinner will be provided with a Q&A session with a speaker panel. Registration is just $100 per person. Go to higherthings.org for more information. That's higherthings.org. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Yeah, it's been known to happen because, well, we give you sound doctrine here and many churches don't. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend, and it's truly, absolutely 
we are dependent on you. We can't do what we're doing without your help, without your financial support. And we're currently in the process of hunting for 600 new powder monkeys. <laughs> I even hate to say it. It's just so, so funny. But uh, what, what, what that means is go to our website, fightingforthefate.com. Click on Join Our Crew. And a Powder Monkey is the lowest rank uh, member of our crew. We got Powder Monkey, Gunner's Mate, Master Gunner, Quartermaster, and the and the uh, the monthly automatic monthly contributions go up. Um, you know, you know, it, different amounts. And we're looking for the equivalent of 600 new Powder Monkeys so that we can you know continue to offer what we're doing here and expand. We have some plans for expansions here. But uh, we we work off the uh, the we gotta pay for things cash rather than put ourselves in debt kind of way of operating. Yeah, we we run a financially tight ship here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. So if you don't already support us and you're not already a member of our crew, crew, please uh, join our crew. We truly can use your help. And of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, uh, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can pull out one of those analog things called a checkbook. Yeah, I still use those. Isn't that weird? Yeah, a lot of people do the digital thing. I, I didn't actually write mine. But anyway, if you would like to do it the, the analog digital way, uh, analog way that I do it, you know, make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, lecture number two in uh, Jeremy Rohde's series that he's uh, taught on the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. Here we go. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Ecclesiastes round two. So we've been looking at Ecclesiastes, and we've been discussing that uh, this issue that Christians today are busy shouting the answer to a people who, do, who don't know the question. And Ecclesiastes is the question. In a world that's oversaturated with information and technology and noise, the signal, right? The internet, TV, your phone, they used to be left in your house, attached in your house, now is attached to your hip and everywhere you go. You can get service out in the wilderness even, so that even while you're seeking solitude, you still have your phone, you still have the whole world connected to you. In a world that's full of noise, what Ecclesiastes means to do is create silence. Silence. So Ecclesiastes silences our busyness and asks deeper questions. In fact, questions that our busyness and our pleasures tend to hide. Those deeper questions of what is the meaning and purpose of your life? What is the greatest good? What should you devote your whole self, your time, and all your energies to? What are you devoting those things to presently? Etc. So, Solomon lines out for us five different pursuits and again, none of these are wrong in and of themselves. The first pursuit is wisdom. In fact, he tries each one of these. The second is pleasure. The first is a pursuit of wisdom, of knowledge, of the heights of reason and human intellect, learning. 
The second is pleasure, not in an unsophisticated caveman uh, sort of way, but rather uh, seeking pleasure, seeking that which is distinctly good from that which is not. Uh, seeking to live life in a way where one pursues uh, the good things, distinguishes between those that are good and those that are excellent, and that that's an entire pursuit, an entire way of life. The third is greatness, which involves wealth, but also power, and greatness can take on many forms, but it's not the idea of tying yourself to greatness is money or greatness is wisdom. It's rather devoting yourself to becoming a great person, whatever that may be, and devoting yourself to a great cause, whatever that may be. And again, if this is at all familiar to you and you have a background in uh, Saddleback Church, it's because that's exactly what your top Christianity is, the pursuit of greatness. In Ecclesiastes, that's just one of the five pursuits, one of the five toils. Nothing inherently wrong with it, but in the end, it's not the answer. Okay, the fourth is surprising, philanthropy, altruism, living your life for others. Remember last week we talked, you know, what is it, what are you living for? And some people would say, I'm living for my kids. You know, everything I'm earning is basically going to go to them. I'm around to support them. I'm living for my kids. What is, what does their life mean? Solomon says, vanity. Vanity of vanities says the preacher, vanity of vanities, the all is vanity, including the lives of your children. So even if you push it off a generation, so to speak, and say, I'm living for my children, you're still living for vanity, which is to say that even philanthropy, even altruism, even a self-sacrificial life ultimately is a toil that comes out as vanity. Again, there's nothing wrong with living that way, but realize its limitation. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's not the meaning of life. Solomon himself tries each of these. Wisdom, pleasure, greatness, philanthropy, and last but not least, religion. Religion itself, as a way of life, is only a pursuit, only a toil, and ultimately, in the end, it also is vanity. So, what Solomon is doing is posing the question, what is the meaning of your life? What is the greatest good? What is the thing that you ought to pursue? And he is taking the collective wisdom of mankind, and he applies himself to each of these. Not sitting in his throne room, not academically. He actually details how he tries to live each one of these toils or pursuits. He puts on wisdom and sees where it takes him and realizes that it doesn't answer the question what is the greatest good? What gives your life meaning, purpose, and value? Wisdom doesn't answer it. Pleasure, which he tries, doesn't answer it. The pursuit of greatness, building lots of awesome stuff, doesn't fulfill it, doesn't answer it. Neither does philanthropy and neither does religion. What does? Now, do you see how Ecclesiastes is asking the question, to which Jesus is the answer. Asking the question, the more three-dimensionality you understand in the question, the more three-dimensionality you'll understand in the cross of Jesus. Okay, so, 
we were looking at the text last week, and his opening statement, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, is simply that the all is vanity. And then he goes into this, uh, and, and he, also, he also introduces this, very important in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, those toils are the things we've been discussing. And under the sun is more than just a catchphrase. Under the sun is the way that Solomon is doing his theology. No supernatural light, no supernatural revelation, simply what my eye sees under the sun. In other words, to be a theologian or philosopher like Solomon is here in Ecclesiastes, you just need your eyes and your brain and a lot of honesty. The first thing he begins to argue or show, the first way he begins to express that the all is vanity is by describing the meaninglessness of cycles. So if you look at verse 4, we discussed this last week, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. There's the earth that goes on forever and ever, and one generation comes and goes and comes and goes, and each generation, generation thinks what? We're it. This is the time. This is us. This is life. This is now. This is not going to change. And before we've even finished our boast, we're gone. And the next one's here thinking the same thing and gone. And the next one the same thing. So that humanity itself as a fallen creature of God as a corporate creature is doomed to a cyclical repetition that ultimately amounts to meaninglessness now Solomon was way ahead of the modern philosophers and the modern way of thinking prior to the world wars we are marching toward utopia Yes, it's generation after generation, but you don't understand. Those generations are building on each other. It coincides with the theory of evolution. We are, as a race, evolving. Okay, there's this minor setback called the war, the Great War, but it's the war to end all wars. This is it. We'll do this thing, and then we will have arrived. Right? The age of Aquarius. And... Then comes World War II. And the end of this idea that the generation after generation are building to something great, that we're all standing upon each other's shoulders, reaching into the sky like some sort of human version of the Tower of Babel. Gone. Destroyed. And what slips in that vacuum is post-modernity that we're dealing with today. The point is... Ecclesiastes was written long before the theory of evolution, long before uh, modernity, long before those ideas that have been so prevalent in our recent history, and he already undercuts them. Generation comes and generation goes and generation comes and it's vanity, it's meaningless. So the human race is not evolving. So, well, yes, we are. We have iPhones now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, the human being, picture him, there we are, the whole corporate mass of Adam, the fallen human being, there we are, and you put, the, you, put, you put it on fast forward, right? And what do you see? You see nothing, you see a papyri, okay, you see the papyri go away, you see an iPhone, right? 
What do you see? You see a spear. He's killing people with spears. He's killing people with animals. Okay, that goes away. He's got a nuclear bomb. But what stays the same? The man. Yeah. We're, we engage in a race like every other creature in microevolution. A flower may change its color over time, or gnats may grow longer wings, or whatever it is, right? But the flower still remains the flower, and the gnat still remains the gnat, even though it adapts in a horizontal sort of way. It never changes into something it's not, in a vertical way. And the same is true for humanity. We may move from the papyrus to the iPhone, from the spear to the nuke, but think about it, that's a horizontal change. We, still, we haven't become something we weren't before. We are still the same fallen race, the same fallen man. And that's all included in this point that the Holy Spirit speaks through Solomon. Okay, so that's how it is for human beings. How is it for the world, the cosmos, the solar system? Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. See the cycle? It goes up, it goes down, it goes back around. It's just the endless cycle of the sun. The whole solar system is preaching Ecclesiastes to you every day. The daily grind isn't something people invented. It is literally written into creation. Day and night and day and night and day and night. And again, we talked about how merciless it would be if, if, we had no, if we had no months, if we had no years, if we had no weeks. If it was, what is today? I don't know. Today is Monday. Today is the day I'm grumpy. Okay, it's Wednesday. It's, it's hump day. It's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. It's Sunday. I go to church. Look at the wonderful variety. But what if we didn't have that week? What if we stripped that construct away, so to speak, and it was just one day after another after another? What day is it? Monday, Wednesday, or Friday? What are those? It's just the endless march. Okay, so the solar system speaks of an endless march. Even the week, we'll allow ourselves that, speaks of an endless march, just repeating and repeating, and the month the same, and the year the same, the seasons the same, endless repeating, endless repetition. And where does the world go? What changes? What moves? What happens? Where is meaning or purpose? The all is vanity. Uh, Peter Kreeft makes the point that this is modern man's greatest fear. Ancient man, I think he's I think he's onto something. Ancient man's greatest fear was death. I don't want to die. To ancient man, death was the great unknown. Death was the, is this eternal death? What happens? It's the end. I'm never coming back. Simply death itself was enough to scare to death <laughs> the ancient man. Now we're not so frightened of death. We're not so frightened of death. We're fairly convinced that there's something on the other side. Those who have, quote-unquote, come back from the dead tell us there's a warm, fuzzy ball of light that loves everyone. It's not that much to fear. I mean, it's a fear, but it's not the fear. Medieval man doesn't so much fear death, he fears hell. This is particularly true. I, I should say that all this is particularly true in the West. In the West, medieval man fears hell he is not so afraid of death. Death is just part of it, but what comes after death could be a heck of a lot worse. 
a heck of a lot worse. You can make death look like a piece of cake. Hell is what medieval man fears. And now we are so enlightened we don't fear hell because we don't believe it exists. Love wins. Right? Rob Bell. Uh, we don't believe that hell exists. Or if we do, only the really, really bad people go there. Hell is pretty much populated by Satan and Hitler and the other political party. And that's, that's it. That's it. Not a lot of people in hell. Not much to be afraid of. Plus, God's the good guy in the sky. I'm a good guy. Can't have that big of an issue with me. Right? He's like the great-grandfather. You know, did you, when you were growing up, did you ever fear your grandfather? I, I never did. I never feared my grandfather. My grandfathers were always kind to me. That's the beautiful and blessed vocation of a grandfather. My father? Oh, man, did I fear. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating that God never ha says to us, uh, or Jesus never teaches us to pray, Our grandfather, who art in heaven... <laughs> God is not once described in the Bible as being our grandfather. That's not the relationship he has with us. Grandfathers are kind and wink and don't think anything bad is going to happen. And they have that luxury because dad is sitting there losing his hair, right? Because mom and dad are there. It's their job to make sure that the stuff doesn't happen. They're bearing the burden, freeing grandpa up. Well, God describes himself as a father because he cares. He disciplines. He cares at that, at that deeper level, at that more profound level, that a grandfather would only care that way if he had to. Okay, But that's not his primary vocation or role. God describes himself as father because he is one to be feared. Well, that goes all in line with the medieval view, with even Jesus' view, to fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay. And that is what we as modern men have completely lost is the fear of hell because we've completely lost God as our Father. We've completely lost God as anyone who means business. So what is left for modern man? Not death, not hell, but this question. Is your life meaningless? And that would be the postmodern disease because postmodernism says, yeah, you create you, you create your reality, everyone's creating reality, and in the end it's self-created and it's meaningless. So meaninglessness becomes our greatest fear whether we realize it or not. It's why I can preach as sternly and harshly with the full weight of the law about death and hell, and I can actually see people yawning. But I can do the class I did last week and seriously worry if anyone's going to come back. Because Solomon and Ecclesiastes hits home. Meaninglessness hits home. In fact, the purpose-driven life is the number two bestseller, I think, right behind the Bible globally. And I think that the title itself plays on man, modern man's greatest fears. It promises you that there is a purpose, a meaning. So for all of its self-contradictions and terrible theology, and it's all about 
God in the first page, and then the next 300 pages, it's all about you. Okay, for all of that, the one thing he's tapped into is the title and the idea that modern man's biggest fear is purposelessness, meaninglessness, vanity. Okay, so the more we study Ecclesiastes and the questions being asked, the arguments being posed, the more we're looking into that black abyss of our own deepest fears as postmodern human beings. All right, so the generation, mankind, goes in cycles going nowhere. The sun, the solar system, our experience of days goes in a cycle, goes nowhere. Then verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. Doing what? Accomplishing what? Nothing. It simply cycles about. So that all you have to do is go out into nature, put your cell phone down for two seconds, listen to the wind, and Ecclesiastes is preaching to you. Watch the wind blowing the trees and say, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Where's it going? Mm-hmm. How long have I been blowing? Long before you were ever even born. How long will I be blowing? Long before you are, long after you are gone. I've been blowing for millennia. I'll be blowing for millennia still. What will you be doing, Wind? Nothing. What will you be doing, Pastor Rody? You'll be dead. Okay? The wind blows and blows in cycles and circuits and is meaninglessness. Likewise, verse 7, all streams run to the sea. They appear to have a point. Follow a stream long enough, you're going to get to a sea. Appears to be going somewhere. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So the sea doesn't fill up, the rivers don't dry up, there's not an end, but it's a constant pouring into the oceans and a constant evaporation up, clouds going out, dumping the water that flows back down to the ocean and repeat. And repeat. So if you're a weatherman, you're a theologian. Because you're just tracking the endless cycle. The endless cycle of meaninglessness and chance. Okay, what is all of this movement? Great, huge, not to be minimized movements. The great movements of the human race. Billions upon billions of souls spending life and energy and heart and mind. More than that, the cosmos itself, the planet swirling, the sun going up and down, which really, what is up and down? But us going around the sun and the sun in the galaxy and the galaxy just being one of billions of galaxies and all of it moving or whatever the most recent theory is that we think we know. Energy. Energy beyond what we can even conceive. Same with the wind. If only we could harness that energy efficiently. Same with the water. If only we could harness that energy efficiently. And we've tried, you know, we've got our windmills out in the desert and we've got our dams. But the point is, it is busy. It is full of cosmic, cataclysmic, mind-blowing energy. Work. And verse 8, all things are full of weariness 
a man cannot utter it. Because all of those great efforts that we just mentioned are like you on a treadmill, going nowhere fast. Right? Burning calories in a room that, on a machine that makes sure that you go nowhere. Happy times. <laughs> all things are full of weariness. So Solomon looks at it all and says, all the effort, all the toil, all the nothingness, weary, weary. I hear the wind blowing and the water rushing and I hear weariness. I see the cosmos weary with its action that goes nowhere. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Okay, A poetic way of putting everything that I see does not fill the void that is within me. The void that I see within humanity, the void that I see within the cosmos and nature itself, I see, but my eye is not satisfied. Never once do I say, there it is. There is the meaning. There is the purpose. Rather, my eye, after seeing all these things, is left empty. My ear, after being filled with all these things, is not filled with hearing that has any meaning or purpose or point. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. The past is going to be the future. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. What you hear under the sun leaves you empty. What you see under the sun leaves you empty because you're looking at it and it's all empty. It's all expenditure for nothing. So in the tech world, there's great passion and excitement. Look at all of the new innovations. Look at the explosion. Look at the passion. We want people to make stuff, to make life better. To, to further and advance what we can do and what we can enjoy. Why? There's nothing wrong with that in itself. That's not the criticism. The criticism is why and where does it go? To which people will stare at you dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. Okay. That's uh, a decent place to pause for questions or comments. Are there any? No. The air conditioner's back here. Uh, just a wondering question. Uh, since we've seen the cycle that we've been through, is it possible to predict what what is next? Will we repeat through again? Uh, or is it just a comment on that? Yeah, I don't know that there's any prediction. I don't. There's. I don't think I see anything like that in Solomon and Ecclesiastes. My own wit and wisdom is you just watch the pendulum swing back and forth. Basically. 
You know, you see the day become night and the night become day. Back and forth, back and forth throughout time. What's that? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, what was that? Jim has to move forward and then I call him back. He cycle and repeat. Dale, you are Prozac incarnate right now. Thank you. What, what do you do with the person who says, oh, you know, okay, so, you know, things just go over and over again. You know what? I like, I like what I do. I'm just having the pleasure of the moment. That's my meaning. And and uh, I probably Ecclesiastes would say, toil away, go for it. Yeah. And and again, it would sort of say, so you like it, but just because you like it doesn't mean that's the point or the purpose. Are you sure there's nothing else to it? Yeah, there's nothing else to it. I just like it. Go for it. I mean, there's a there's an indifference if someone looks at the abyss and says. Well, isn't that lovely? I, I think I'll get another pack of gummy bears. Uh, what are you supposed to do? You know, there's the abyss. We're all going to be swallowed up into it. Oh, I, I, okay. Let me let me get on my iPhone and Google research this. Oh. I mean, at a certain point, when a human being just comes to terms and says, "Okay," God sort of says, "Okay," and that doesn't mean that's where it has to end. But the law has to do its work, or rather, reality has to do its work on that person. All right, any other thoughts or questions? Let's go a little further. Okay, so we're still doing the cycle business. And the cycle business sort of undergirds or at least uh, expresses and explains this argument, there is nothing new under the sun. And again, you know, Solomon is wise enough to know that technologies shift and change. A new generation comes and an old passes away. So, you know, look, he's not saying something superficial and stupid. He understands there's newness and novelty in a horizontal sense. He knows that there's a development in technology, a, a newness under the sun of one generation versus another, etc. But that's not his point at all. His point is that the cycles don't ever end. The cycles of humanity, the cycles of the cosmos, the cycles of time, wind, water, they don't end. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, these are, these are the pieces that you have to play with. Build them in whatever shape what, you, know, you want. Make a house, make a sandbox, make, you know, make anything that you can with these pieces. They're still the same pieces. That's his point. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. All right, now this is a shift in argument and gets us to a second point. No remembrance, okay? So if you're tracking sort of in a topical sense, the first has been cycles. The all is vanity. Let's examine this. Cycles. That's a theme, and it's a theme that's going to be recurrent. Here's a new theme. There's no remembrance. 
All is vanity because there is no remembrance. And that's going to be another theme. So I preached a sermon not long ago where we were remembering uh, St. Bartholomew. Except we don't actually remember St. Bartholomew at all. Right? We remember a few snippets. Supposedly what tradition tells us. And maybe a line or two, maybe a little bit more out of scripture. But not much. And what we are remembering is a shell, a fragment, a tiny little bit of what this man was. So it's as Solomon says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. There hasn't been any remembrance before. There isn't any remembrance now. There won't be after. We are all doomed to forget. No matter how important you are, the day will come when you are forgotten. For most of us, that's very, very soon. You know, what the next generation will remember who we are. If we meet our grandkids, maybe they'll remember who we are. And then that's it. I'd go over to my grandma and grandpa's house on my dad's side in college, and they'd show, show me old pictures of family, you know, going way back. I didn't know those people. I mean, it's fascinating to learn the history and where I came from and all that, but they're strangers. They're complete and utter strangers. They're completely forgotten. And what a tragedy. What a tragedy. And there's no bringing them back. There's no remembrance. No matter how many books you write, they're all going to go away. No matter how many footnotes your name is cited in, it's going to go away. No matter how wonderfully praised your great scientific discovery, theory, philosophy is, it'll probably be upset, overturned. And that's the point that he's driving at. There's no remembrance of former things. Okay. Now, there are some interesting dynamics for us to think about, too. Even when you do remember someone, like you would uh, remember uh, mom and dad who have died, or remember a brother or sister who have died, or remember children of yours who have died, people you know and remember very intimately with detailed memories, it is still impossible to remember them in the sense of remembering and encompassing all of them. The point of all that is because when you go to a funeral or when you read sympathy cards written by Hallmark, you come to realize that once all our medical efforts and science have failed us, we say grandpa or brother or son are alive how? In our memories. As long as we remember them, they are alive in our memories. Now the point is, even if that were true, you can't remember an entire person. God would have to remember that person. God's the only one who can wrap himself around the whole of another person. We're incapable, individually or even collectively as a human race, which is a stunning thing. So let's assume that if we actually could keep someone alive in our memories, the problem is we can't wrap ourselves, even as a collective human race, around one single individual. Now, all of this is very important because the Bible has a lot to say about remembrance. 
and specifically the remembrance of Jesus. Do you remember the thief on the cross? What does he say? Remember me. Why? Why? Because we with our pagan idea that grandpa or brother or son are alive in our memories have stumbled upon a lie of the devil and a lie of the devil is always wrapped around a grain of truth. And the grain of truth is precisely that. If you can be alive in a memory. But whose? Not man's, individually or collectively, but God's. When God remembers you, you are alive. Therefore, he is the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, present tense, not the dead. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because if God remembers us, then we are alive and are alive eternally. And the opposite of that is, what if God forgets us? You're gone. You're outside of life. You have the experience not of God and of life, but of eternal death and of not God. Jesus, uh, one of his disciples asks or at least one of his followers, I don't know if it was one of the twelve, asks him, how many will there be that enter the kingdom of heaven? Lots or a few? And Jesus hates those kinds of questions. Because without the asker probably even recognizing it, the question itself puts the fallen human being on the divine throne judging God. How many are going to get in? How fair are you? How just are you? How merciful are you? Is it acceptable to me? Well, Jesus will never answer that kind of theological question. So he tells a story. And the story is those who, are, uh, who are, find themselves locked out of the city and locked out of the household where the master is. And they cry out. It's all paraphrased. You'll have to look it up in detail. And they cry out, Lord, it's us. You ate with us. You drank with us. You were in our city, in our homes. We know you. You know us. And what does the master say? I never knew you. I don't know who you are. Now, most certainly he did. Because he ate with them and drank with them in their cities and in their houses. But what has happened that now he doesn't know them where before he did. He has forgotten. So when tempted to ask how many are getting in, is heaven going to be full or empty? Are more people going to heaven or more to hell? Remember Jesus' story because it all drives to this point. You repent or else you won't get in. Now in that story though, is that idea that eternal death is to be separated from the God who is life. And if He doesn't remember you or know you, then you actually are dead. Not annihilated. Not poof, gone, seeing a black screen, nothing like before you were born. No, nothing nearly that merciful. You exist, but in a state of eternal separation from God and therefore in a state of eternal death. 
and in a state of eternally being unknown and forgotten by God. Which is a very poignant way of describing what hell actually is. Okay, so, everything depends on God's remembering. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. To be known by God, to be forgiven by him, to be remembered by him, is everything. Everything. All of that is the answer to the question being posed here by Solomon. The question is that there is no remembrance among human beings. We are incapable of remembering even a single other person. We cannot save anyone. We cannot keep anyone alive in our memories. We cannot keep anything alive in our memories. A few, one, two, three generations go by and all that previously was is utterly forgotten. That's futility, that's death, that's hell, that's meaningless. That has, there has to be a different answer. And the answer is found in the lips of that crucified thief. Remember me. If you remember God, if you remember me, Lord Jesus, then I will be with you in paradise forever. All right. So this concept of no remembrance is also a concept of why the all is meaningless. Because one might even say, if we could gather the collective wisdom of the generations, then we truly would evolve. But Solomon's saying, you can't actually do that, and we don't actually do that. The collective wisdom of each generation is largely forgotten in the next, and in the subsequent generations is basically completely forgotten. All right. Ready for a new pursuit? Verse 12, I, the preacher, Solomon, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Again, under heaven being like under the sun. He's giving us his MO, his way of doing theology, and he's showing us Again, going back to verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There in verse 3, it's rhetorical, nothing. But here he's saying, look, I pursued this toil, namely wisdom. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. How does that go, Solomon? It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom is in the first place, upon Solomon's experience, unhappy business. I mean, for crying out loud, how many happy professors do you know? <laughs> we have lots of professors in here, so I can tease. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The more you know, in this old cliched phrase, the more you realize you don't know. Don't know. So it's an unhappy business. 
Because you can look back and say, I gained so much, and I, the more I've gained, the more I've realized I don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. It's a lot bigger than I'll ever discover. It's an unhappy business. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Okay, what does the wind do? The wind blows south and north. It uh, round and around goes the wind and the circuits. It's wind. And I chased after it and chased after it. And if I was a dog, I would be chasing my own tail. So wisdom is a toil. Now, it sounds like he's dissing wisdom as a pursuit outright. He's not. He's explaining the limitations that he found when pursuing wisdom as the ultimate good, as the meaning of life. Friends, the meaning of life is this, to pursue wisdom, to better yourselves, to participate in the great collective that is the human race compiling its wisdom and knowledge and passing it on and evolving and evolving and doing great things. Okay. What he's doing is saying it's not that great. Pursue it. It's not wrong, but it's an unhappy business. And ultimately, you're a dog chasing after your own tail. It's vanity and it's chasing after the wind that goes around and around in circles. Great line. I don't know if Radiohead quoted it directly, intentionally or not. What, it, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Which is sort of one of those inexhaustible phrases. Okay, so immediately in context... If the what is wisdom, then the point is you want wisdom to go somewhere, but it doesn't. By nature is crooked. It's not straight. You can't make it straight. Deeper than that is the reflection on human nature itself, of which wisdom is a part. What is crooked cannot be made straight, not by force of will, not by learning, not by wisdom, not by applying yourself. There's no magic. There's no secret. People get rich selling books. Churches get huge by authors selling books. But in the end, what is crooked cannot be made straight. It's not the answer. Self-improvement, more broadly, is not the answer. Is it bad? No. Improve away. But at the same time, don't be deluded into thinking that what was once crooked, you've now made straight. And we know that even as Christians deeply, as you pursue sanctification, as you uh, attempt to crucify the sinful flesh within you with its desires, right? You, uh, you, the second you crucify and put away some external manifestation or act, is also the second you realize that the desire hasn't gone away. You know, when the alcoholic stops drinking and throws it all out and checks into a program, he doesn't stop desiring alcohol, does he? And so it is with all sins. Put away the external. That's good. Do it. It's healthy. It's better for you and for the people around you. It's it's what we're to do as Christians. It's part of our vocation, being conformed into the image of Christ. And yet, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Realize that the only thing that is going to make you straight, because you are actually crooked, 
is for you, the crooked creature, to be put to death and raised new as the straight creature in the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the ultimate and only answer is for us to be crucified, buried with Christ, and raised with him. Otherwise, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Which again is sort of an inexhaustible thought. But it's the idea that, uh, in part, that we human beings are so focused on what we have or what we can do, that we don't realize the great void, the lacking that cannot be counted. Right? No one had computers in their homes. Then everyone had a personal computer. See, haven't we done a great thing? Then everyone's personal computer went to a laptop. Look at this. Then everyone's laptop went to a phone. Woo! The next thing is wearables. It'll be your watch. And the thing after that is it'll just be implanted so you see it in your eye, you know? Google will see everything you see and tell you all you need to know. And all of these great advances as we perceive them, these great leaps in wisdom and technology, Solomon's point is it's sort of like an ant discovering a new twig. An ant that finds a pea and carries it home and everyone goes, Whoa, we've never seen this before! Super! In other words, what is lacking What we don't know that we could have is so great, so immense. Why? Because we're so blinded by the little things we can do, making ourselves in our own mind like this God that has done this incredibly awesome and immense thing. We're blinded to the fact that we're an ant picking up a pea and that's our greatest accomplishment. What is lacking cannot be counted. The more you learn, the less you know. The more you discover, the more you learn that you haven't discovered. You conquer one disease and you realize there's many more. As soon as you get one eradicated, more arrive. There's constantly, constantly more. What is lacking cannot be counted. All right, so this is uh, a two-line expression of the futility of wisdom and why the pursuit of wisdom is fine and may in some ways be superior to other pursuits, and yet it doesn't ultimately go anywhere. It's not ultimately the answer to the meaning or purpose of life. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. The Lutheran Study Bible makes this point that in the pursuit of wisdom, human wisdom, wisdom apart from the wisdom of God, that that wisdom has a way of, when one acquires too much of it, of creating madness and folly. How can that be? How can that be? Some of the greatest philosophers who reject outright the wisdom of God but pursue the wisdom of reason, the wisdom that human beings can accomplish to its utmost also become mad. Or 
end up saying the most ridiculously stupid things imaginable. Folly. So the pursuit of wisdom brings with it madness and folly, close cousins, which is strange but true. So eugenics, remember that? A great movement of wisdom. We know that the human race is evolving. It's evolving and we're having too many people. It's evolving and we want to control the direction it's evolving. We want it to evolve in this way and not another way. How are we going to do this with the knowledge we have and the technology we've gained? Prophylactics, birth control, in some countries designating those who are weak and to be called out who are not either uh, fit for breeding and propagating the human race in its upward track or have no business at all being part of the human race. This whole movement is created by wisdom, and it brings nothing but madness, folly, and atrocity to the human race. What is it that brings wars and conflicts to the earth? We say, oh, it's just the stupidity of men. If women ruled the world, then we wouldn't have wars. Well, it's not the stupidity of man, it's precisely the opposite. I mean, the people in the Pentagon, in the secret room, deciding who's going to get the next smart bomb aren't going, Ugh. they're not stupid. It's wisdom, it's the height, peak, and epitome of human wisdom that leads us into violent encounters with one another that leads us into folly and madness of all sorts. We call it stupidity, but that's actually inaccurate. It's wisdom that is also madness and folly. Okay, verse 17, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. They're all the same. I perceive that this also is but a striving for the wind. For in much wisdom there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Which I think is just observably true. People who have experienced enough of life, drank deeply of it, thought deeply of it, carry with them a certain gravity, a certain seriousness. Because why? Wisdom brings with it vexation. The increase of knowledge increases sorrow. So, again, Solomon's point, his larger argument, is pursue wisdom. It's good for you to pursue wisdom. It might even be superior than other toils and pursuits. But know that it comes with a curse. It can't be the greatest good. It can't be the ultimate answer because in and of itself it brings vexation and sorrow, and unhappiness, and ultimately causes one to strive after the wind, chase one's own tail in circles. Okay? Questions or comments? Very quickly. We can take one or two if there are any. Next week, we move with Solomon from the pursuit of wisdom to the pursuit of pleasure. Pleasure. 
But again, not the crass like mm, me caveman, me want a cheeseburger. Uh, but but the pursuit of pleasure as an art and a science and as a way of life. And we'll see that it too does not quite answer the question, what is the meaning and purpose of your existence in life? The Lord be with you. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by carry death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>